Welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton, and we are doing our very best. We have made a promise on our uh, podcast of Eating Together that we would respond more promptly to audience feedback. And so, without further ado, we received a comment and a question from the one and only Mike Alberti, who is a true friend of the pod. And he was listening to uh, our episode, Eating Together, in which we discussed a number of things, but one of which was the concept of pressure in poetry and how thinking about the way parts of poems can or cannot withstand pressure is sometimes a useful and often central way of assessing a poem's effectiveness. My first example is pretty random. Um, I don't know if you've seen the not-so-great, but at the time, maybe you liked it, rom-com 500 Days of Summer, which I did, and at the time I liked it, now I realized, full of problems, not very good. Um, But... Those problems aside, one notable part about the movie is the way that it ends. And I think it's a particularly cringe-worthy ending because of this idea of pressure. So if you haven't seen the movie, basically it's a rom-com and it follows this guy who falls in love and is in a relationship with this woman and her name is Summer. And so it tracks the 500 days that... Um, he is either pining for or in a relationship with or can't get over uh, this woman, Summer. And so obviously there's this pun built into the title that Summer is the person, but also it's like a longer season. And so at the end, the movie needs to have a resolution, of course, that demonstrates that this protagonist has gotten over Summer and is turning a new leaf and is ready to move on. And so the scene that concludes the movie is he walks into a room and runs into this woman and introduces himself and asks her name, and she says that her name is Autumn. And that is the worst ending. And it's the worst because of an idea of pressure, I think. Which is, this last scene, A, it's the last scene. It's the last moment that the audience will spend looking at this film and thinking about it before they leave and go back to their mundane lives. But it also has extra structural importance because it is serving to provide the resolution to the narrative arc. And so it has to hold up in that kind of structural way, which is sort of an added... um, importance. And the movie, by making him run into a woman named Autumn, makes the resolution entirely depend on a pun about names and doesn't do anything to suggest that he's actually moving on. And so this pun, which is not actually that clever, has all of the pressure of the resolution of the movie, which means that the pun is under an excruciatingly large amount of pressure. 
And that's why when I saw the movie, and many others who did, when she utters those words, Autumn, you just go, oh, come on. Because it doesn't stand up to the pressure. It doesn't satisfy the cathartic resolution that we want from a rom-com. So moving more directly into poetry, there's a few ways that I think pressure operates, and so I wanted to sort of briefly run them down. One is just line length. And a basic rule of thumb is if a line is longer, there's more words in that line. And so each word in that line has less pressure under it to do a lot of work because the line itself is supported by all of the words in that line. And by contrast, a very short line, one with two or three or maybe one word, is under a great deal more pressure, each word of it. And furthermore, if the poem has a lot of lines that are longer, and this is when I brought up the example of What the Living Do by Marie Howe, where most of the poem are these really long lines that are almost the width of a page. And then the last line is just, I am living, I remember you. So it's like a third of the length. And so the combination of A, it's a short line, so the, the six words, I am living, I remember you, are suddenly much more important on their own. But then, especially when it's stacked against the readers having read all of these long lines where words are less under pressure to perform the work of an entire line, then those words in that last line, I am living, I remember you, are under an extra deal of pressure to work. And so this idea of pressure is essentially a risk that poems take, where on the one hand, if they fall under the pressure, it's especially bad. But on the other hand, if they withstand the pressure, that's when the poem gets most of its power. If you have an epic poem or a long poem that has a thousand lines, whatever, each line is going to be under less pressure to perform the work that the whole poem needs. And by contrast, if you have a short poem, each line has to do more work for the whole poem because it's a significantly larger percentage. Here's maybe a common example where line length might be important and actually an argument that I have that I haven't seen. Um, there's a very controversial famous poem by William Carlos Williams that is often referred to as the Red Wheelbarrow. It goes like this. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rain water beside the white chickens. Now, this poem is often taught in isolation by a teacher who doesn't like poetry, and it's taught with the pedagogy that you must pull all of the meaning from a poem that you can and that every word is symbolic, blah, blah, blah. And so people read this poem which is very short, and all the lines are short, and suddenly the poem is under a great deal of pressure. And that's why people are infuriated by that poem so often, because part of the way that it's taught 
puts the poem under more pressure, perhaps, than it deserves. Um, and furthermore, the poem was originally published in Williams's book, Spring and All, which is an amazing book that I highly recommend. But one thing that's interesting about it is that it's actually largely prose. It's a lot of ramblings about the imagination and his sort of ideas about all that stuff. And then thrown into the prose stuff are these little poems that just come and go. And the red wheelbarrow works the same way. So you're reading all this prose and then suddenly you get a little poem. And when I read it in the book, the poem was under much less pressure, I think, because it read more as like a, not quite, but like a throwaway, where like, oh, and here's a little poem that I got for you, rather than the situation where you are in this classroom and you're, you have your three-week poetry unit where you're supposed to learn literally all about poetry and everything and all the history and blah, 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 and you hate it and the teacher hates it because no one teaches poetry right, and then you get this poem called The, the Red Wheelbarrow, and it's just about a wheelbarrow and it doesn't even say anything, and that's one of your nine poems that's supposed to represent all of poetry, and you're like, fuck this. And in that context, that poem is under a great deal of pressure. And I don't know if the poem withstands that pressure in that situation, but because of the way it was published originally, I don't know if it's supposed to withstand that pressure. I don't know if that's intent. So there's also this element, one with line length, because it's a shorter poem, it's naturally going to have more pressure, but also the context in which you're reading it or in which it's taught gives poems more or less pressure. With line length and with the number of lines, one way of thinking about this is to think about beginning writers of poetry. Often, and this was no exception for me, when I discovered what the line break was or the enjambment, I just like freaked out. And I was like, oh my god, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm going to use it all the time. It's going to be my big thing that I'm going to whip out and then everyone's going to be like, oh my god, the way you enjam that at the end was amazing. But the result was the poem basically put all of its cards on my enjambment. And the entire poem rested on this turn that I had built in obviously with the enjambment. And then the line that came after the line break probably only had like two words, which was like my heart or something. And so... This is an example of, of too much pressure being put on this line length and the way that the lines are working. And that's a problem that I think a lot of newer writers of poetry have, where they are first discovering the ways they can use the tools of poetry, which is good, but put too much of the poem's emotional weight into those moods. A couple other things that I'm thinking about. One is this idea of freshness. Language has to be fresh in poetry. It has to be new. It has to be striking. And one way to think about why this is, is an idea of pressure. And if you have a short poem and all of your words are common or cliche or familiar, and they're talking about the heart being a rose and blah, blah, blah. 
there's a way of thinking about why that doesn't work as those words are no longer able to withstand the pressure they need to to make an effective poem. Think about words as a kind of machine that in the beginning are these new brand spanking things that have, they're all oiled, they're the latest technology, they're up to the task, no one's seen them, they're a novelty. And then if they're so great, they get used and used and used and used and people put more and more and more pressure on it. And they grow weaker over time until eventually they no longer do the work that they need to do and they can no longer withstand the pressure that they need to to perform that work in the poem. And so fresh language is language that, that a reader is likely not to have encountered and likely not to have put their own pressure on before. And so the language comes to the reader as a new brand spanking machine. Two other quick thoughts of ways that pressure, I think, can work and work in ways that connect to the other ways that we think about what makes a good poem. One is concrete detail. This is emphasized in all art that you need to show, not tell, blah, blah, blah. And one reason that's given, which is right, is that you need to immerse the reader in the experience. You need to have them feel it themselves. But the other thing that concrete detail does is it doesn't tell what the poem is. It refuses a certain pressure that it might be under. It just says this is what it is, and I'm not going to tell you the meaning of the poem. And if I told you the meaning of the poem, then that part would have to be under the pressure of the whole poem. An example of a poem that does this well is a poem called Midterm Break, which is by Seamus Heaney. And this is a very sad poem about a boy who died at four years old, and they're going to the funeral. And it's in three-line stanzas, and then the last line of the poem is its own stanza, and the line is a four-foot box, a foot for every year. And I feel like that's a devastating line, especially when you read the whole poem, but part of the reason why is it does these two things. One is it has a lot of pressure because it's at the end of the poem, it's its own line, but it also takes some pressure off because it's concrete. It doesn't try to sum up everything or stand in for the whole poem. It just describes the length of the box and how the box relates to the year. And so this interplay of both increasing the pressure and reducing the pressure is, I think, a way that concrete detail is effective for poems that want to put themselves in situations that give a lot of pressure to things. So the reader half goes in being like, oh, this is the last line. This line's the only thing in the stanza. I'm going to put a lot of weight into it. And then it's just a concrete detail. And then it pulls back and it's just a detail. And that interplay, I think, um, both allows the, the poem to work, but also maybe gives it an extra kind of poignancy or tension built into it. The last thought that I have is about ambiguity, which is a sort of a fraught term, but one way of assessing poems which sort of dates back to the new critics of the 30s and 40s who argued that we need to analyze poems completely on their own terms, divorced from the author and from history and all that stuff, and we need to consider it as a self-contained unit. And 
the results of that were they gave a great deal of attention to paradox and amb ambiguity and the tension that happens when you think of a poem in isolation where it's made of contradictory parts. There's a lot of problems with new criticism, but I do think that ambiguity is still a useful tool that poems have. Now, the problem with ambiguity is that it's infuriating to readers because they just want to know what you think and how you feel about what happened. And there's also an idea that poems are now evasive and poets hate readers and there's too much difficulty and that's because of ambiguity. And there's also poets who learn about ambiguity and then they're like, oh, it's ambiguous. And then they use ambiguity to hide behind their own sloppy writing. But nevertheless, some unsure part about the poem is still very interesting. And it makes sense that a poem isn't always sure what it thinks. And so if a poem's successful, often it's ambiguous in a precise way, or it's ambiguous with respect to one part of the poem. But without rambling more about it, if a poem has ambiguity, what that means is that it's resisting easy interpretation. And in a poem, tools that can resist meaning mean that it can resist the pressure that it's under. And ambiguity and paradox and these other ways of being not exactly direct and clear are ways that poems can endure beyond the lifespan of their being read. And so it's an essential feature, I think, of poems who especially are using an extreme economy of language to be ambiguous to some degree so that the reader isn't left with a simple pill that they take and then they're like, okay, I'm done. But they, they know the words, but they're left lingering in that reader's head. And, and that ambiguity gives the poem an extra resistance to the pressure that it's under. I've realized that I've just rambled for quite a long time, but... I hope that this elucidates a little more about the way that I think about pressure in poetry and the way that it can be useful in assessing a poem's effectiveness. If you have any other questions about pressure or about other concepts in poems that you'd like to hear about, uh, please let us know and yeah, we'd love to talk about them.